Welcome to Jaffa's Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Jaffe. In this four-part series with Rabbi Yedidya Sinclair, we explore connections between Talmudic teachings and our current climate crisis. Time to coincide with Sukkot, Rabbi Sinclair takes us on an incredible journey through ancient Jewish wisdom with modern implications. This series is sponsored by the Hazon dance troupe, the Lulav Shakers. Returning from their virtual world tour, we are thrilled to be channeling their energy through today's podcast. Feel free to grab your finest etrog and join us in congratulating the team as each shake brings them closer to God. For this series, we'd like to offer some framing. Sukkot ends each year with a prayer for rain. Talmud Tractate, Ta'anit, begins by asking what happens and what we should do if the rain doesn't come. The acute crisis of COVID-19 against the backdrop of the creeping challenge of a warming climate are shaking our sense of invulnerability to the natural world. And they are challenging our society's capacities to effectively respond. We need deeper sources of wisdom to orient ourselves to these challenges. Jewish wisdom about coping with a climactic crisis and plague is distilled in Tractate Ta'anit, which addresses how we should respond when a change in the weather threatens our lives and livelihoods. As different as our reality is from the Talmuds, both the rabbis and contemporary environmentalists converge on the view that dangerous disruption to the weather requires a response that touches our lifestyles, behaviors, and spiritual consciousness. In these four consecutive lectures, Rabbi Yadija Sinclair argues that people respond to existential danger from the weather through shifts in behavior and consciousness that reverberate across the divide, separating pre-modern and post-modern awareness. Through exploring these places of mutual resonance between the Talmud's world and our own, we will frame a new old theology of climate change that offers hope to overcome this critical challenge. We will now begin part one of our conversation with Rabbi Sinclair. So sit back, grab a cup of tea, and join us. We start, so as we begin, I simply want to welcome everybody. I want to say ma'adim l'simcha, happy Sukkot in the many different places that you and we all find ourselves in this very strange year and near the end of these strange Chagim. And so I think we are going to begin. Chazan has a tradition of beginning on time. my name is Nigel Savage. I'm the CEO of Chazan. I'm actually coming to you. I can't show it you, but I'm actually at our Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center here in Falls Village, Connecticut, on a very, very beautiful full day, which is no different than many different than many equivalent beautiful full days here for many years. But Manish Tana, why is why is this year different from all other years? Well, it's the year, of course, of COVID and all of that. Um, But it is also a year in a broader sense in which we have all of us yet again been provoked to think much more deeply about how we live on this planet and how we are connected to each other. Um, We know that we are over-consuming the world. This has been a year of record temperatures in Jerusalem and in Israel, of not merely fires on the West Coast, but fires that killed people and caused people to move home. And indeed, just in a parochial sense, I spoke to one rabbi who for the third time was changing their Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur plans because of the fires. And so the question for all of us is, what do we do about this? Chazan, going back now 20 years, has wanted to raise awareness in the American Jewish community and in the Jewish community more broadly, and to say to all all of us, no matter how much we love Jewish tradition, or perhaps especially if we love Jewish tradition, What can, could, or should we be doing genuinely to make a more sustainable world for everybody? Some of that is really practical stuff. Some of it will come through our Chazan Seal of Sustainability, a new Brit Chazan that we're launching, plans to get Jewish institutions to commit to seven years of significant change over the course of the next Shemitah cycle. And some of it has to be deeper thought leadership, whatever that phrase means which is to say really much more deeply interrogating our tradition 
and seeing what wisdom can, could, or should Jewish tradition have to help us understand how we should be relating to the world right now. And so that leads me today into this week's series of lectures. We are so honored to welcome Rabbi Yadidia Sinclair from Jerusalem. Yadidia is a very, very dear friend, is an exceptionally serious thinker, whatever that means, is somebody who is exceptionally well-educated in a Western sense, has orthodox smicha, who seven years ago worked on Shabbat Haaretz, the first ever bilingual edition of the introduction to Rav Cook's Shabbat Haaretz, which was itself a not insignificant contribution to Jewish thought in the 21st century. And so today we turn over to Yedidia, essentially to ask the question, is there such a thing as, as a Jewish climate change theology? Where do we look in the tradition? What should we be looking for and what can we find? And the last thing I'll say before I hand over is I'm really happy that part of his answer is inextricably linked to Masachet Tanit. I am not a learned person, but it so happens that I learned Tanit 25 years ago and loved it so much that I started a chavruta with a friend once a week more than a year ago, and we're still only halfway through. Um, it is absolutely fitting that we should be doing this during Cholamoed Sukkot, because Tani, of course, begins with the prayer for rains, which we say at the very end of Sukkot, and the question of what happens if they don't come. And so with all of that, welcome everybody. Yudidia, thank you so much for joining us here up. Hello, everybody. Moadim uh, Simcha. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from Jerusalem. Thank you, Nigel. I always love working with Chazon, and, and I so much respect what you do, and I'm super, super excited to be here doing this uh, series with you. I know, everybody, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and so I want to sincerely thank everybody for joining. So, Moadim Simcha, happy Sukkot. And I'll begin with just a short Devar Torah about Sukkot. Today, you know, we took the four species, the Arba Minim, here are mine, but why? Well, you know, a lot of reasons are given, different kinds of Jews, a lot of Anesrog, there's a lot of beautiful explanations given, but one of the most poignant and actually little noticed reasons that I know of appears on the first page of Tanit, the book we'll be talking about in this series. So on the first page of Tanit, there's an argument about when we start mentioning the words Mashiv HaRuach Umoid HaGashem, the one who, who makes the wind blow and the, uh, and the rain to fall in our prayers. So Rebbe Eleazar says we start doing this on the first day of Sukkot, and Rebbe Yoshua says on Shemini Atzeret, the end of this week, which is, of course, what we do. So where do they get this from? So Rebbe Abahu says they learned their opinion from the lulav, right? So Rebbe Eliezer says it's from the time when we start taking the lulav, and Rebbe Yeshua says it's the time when we put down the lulav. So both of the rabbis affect a connect mentioning rain with the lulav. But then what's the connection? So the Talmud spells it out. There's Rebbe Eliezer says, we take the lulav because just as life is impossible for these four species of the land of Israel without water, so too life is impossible for the world without water. So in other words, saying these words in prayer is like the verbal equivalent of picking up and shaking the love. According to him, when we take the love, it's as if we're saying, we human beings are like these plants, just as they need water, so too we need water. Now this like, astonishing declaration, I think, contains within it two contrasting thoughts about our relationship with the natural world. On the one hand, it announces we're a part of nature, not apart from it. You know, whatever else human beings are, we're also biological beings, sharing needs for the same basic nutrients with other forms of life. You know, geneticists famously tell us that 80% of human DNA is identical to that of a banana. But we're speaking of our kinship with the rest of creation, right? And, and, and talking is something that a banana and, of course, a, a lulav cannot do. So our abilities for consciousness and speech actually set us apart from other forms of life and allow us to say what it is that we have in common with them. So in verbalizing our need for water, 
shared with these plants that we clasp to us on Sukkot. And by extension with all other things, we're acting, so to speak, as the mouth of the world, in a phrase of my teacher, Dov Berkowitz. So taking the lulav is a kind of a dr dramatization of our essential biological creatureliness. It's like when we pick up the lulav, it's like we're articulating our dependence on and also our interdependence with the climate and with the whole web of life. Now, as Nigel said, we're in a climate crisis. Glaciers are melting, heat waves are longer and hotter, hurricanes are becoming more frequent and destructive, wildfires are more frequent and destructive. This is all in line with and in some ways ahead of predictions of climate scientists. And it's no longer just about scientific predictions. It's the news. It's everyday life and experience. It's the weeks on end this summer that I barely went out of the house because of the unprecedented scorching heat here in Jerusalem. It's about the livid orange smoke and the choking air hanging right now over the Bay Area so that my family there, for whom it's not even safe to sit in their sukkah because of that smoke. And my, my thoughts are really with anybody who's there and experiencing that right now. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? And is there a particular way to respond to it as Jews? Now, I'm, I'm going to argue in these talks that there is. The Jewish wisdom about coping with a climatic crisis in the land of Israel is distilled in Tractate Tanit of the Talmud, which tells us about how we should respond when a dramatic change in nature or the weather threatens our livelihoods and lives. The central subject of, of this book is what happens if it doesn't rain? How do we understand and respond to a situation in which the flow of this most essential and life-giving resource is interrupted? How do we conceive of the causes of such an event? What vision of our interrelationship with the natural world underlies this conception? How do we think about our role in the solution and what needs to change in individual and societal behavior for the situation to be eased or resolved? So Tanit, I suggest, could be called Masechet climate change. And when that thought struck me, I, uh, I pasted inside my copy of Tanit this, this picture, because I really think that that's what it's about. So these talks come out of reading Tanit during the era of climate change. Over the course of this short series, I want to bring out teachings from this book, and I want to make two basic claims. The first is, this book contains profound Jewish teachings accrued from centuries of dealing with climate change and is the most profound source of Jewish wisdom on the subject that we have. And the second is, we need to recover these teachings today. Firstly, as Jews, but secondly, because some of what's in here is not part of the commonly known stock of world wisdom, the world's wisdom about this subject. And perhaps the world also needs some of what's in this book. I think that what it has to offer is mainly on the level of spiritual consciousness and orientation. I don't mean to argue that we can read off answers to policy questions, like should we do cap and trade, should there be a carbon tax from the Talmud? I think that would be simplistic. But, and I do think in some places it tends towards certain of those answers, and then probably at some points I won't be able to resist giving my own take on them. I've got a friend who's skeptical about this whole project and he often challenges me can the Talmud actually teach us anything about climate change that I don't know already I, I think that's a very important question to have in mind and I believe the answer is yes it can there'd be not much point invoking the Talmud to, just to prove that Judaism simply says what everybody else figured out about this subject 15 years ago and I'll, so I'll try not to take your time to say stuff that everybody knows already only with the word Jewish on the tin Quick word about, about my background. So I read Tarnit through the prism of over a decade of working on climate change, both through NGOs and religious activism on the one hand, I've been involved with Chazon throughout that time, and also on the other hand, through technology and business. I worked in an Israeli high-tech startup uh, developing EcoCities, founded by Arnold Goldman, one of the pioneers of the global solar energy uh, industry. And I then, I then joined Energia Global, a Jerusalem-based uh, company founded by Yosef Abramovitz, building large solar projects in Africa, where I played a supporting role to the project manager, Chaim Motsen, in developing the first ever so large solar project in Africa. Um, I'll just show you a picture, because I just think it's so, it's so beautiful. 
uh, here's a picture. Uh, the field is now developing, uh, producing clean energy for tens of thousands of some of the poorest people in in the world. And, and I'm proud to have had a, a very small role in, uh, in helping make it happen. So that's, that's, that's basically where I'm coming from. Um, you know, we, uh, we are the people we are. We read these texts as, uh, as the people that we have. This mix in background has given me an appreciation for both, I think, the moral passion and the grassroots energy of the nonprofit world, but also, on the other hand, for the dynamism and intellectual rigor of the clean technology business sector in Israel, which is what I'm familiar with. That's who I am. So there's, there's no view from nowhere, I think, that we can take on these texts. We just read them as who we are and hope that our limitations in who we are can be complemented and expanded by the perspectives of others. Let, let me say about a word about the title, uh, perhaps a little bit enigmatic, towards a better mythology of climate change. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, I think that Tarnik can provide resources for a better theology and mythology of climate change. Now, it might not be obvious that we either have or need a theology or mythology of climate change. I would argue, however, that there is actually a palpable religious dimension to much of the discussion and debate about climate change. Confronted by this cosmically gigantic challenge, people instinctively reach deep into the collective unconscious and pull out, I would suggest, millennial, millennial myths, and myths and metaphors to just help us make sense of this. The myths that get pulled out, I feel, often tend to be about wholesale destruction, burning apocalypse and the end of the world. And I think that those kind of myths, when you bring them to consciousness and articulate them, are not often not helpful. And that rather than inspiring action, they can tend to elicit paralysis, despair, fatalism and denial. And that's why I say we need a better mythology of climate change. One that, while facing up to the dire facts, embraces human empowerment, responsibility, freedom, the sense of infinite possibility in the world, grounded in faith, and a deep knowledge of our interconnectedness with all of creation. And that, I think, this book can offer. So Thursday's talk is going to be explicitly about the better mythology of climate change, and we'll be building up to that over the, uh, over the week. Um, let me just add, I don't think we said it at the beginning. I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk, or we, I'll be talking all together for 35, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for Q&A, which I'm very much looking forward to, because what I'm, what I'm talking about is things, ideas I've been throwing around with people, Hevruta's teachers in Jerusalem over the last few years. But this is really sort of a first time test driving it out there. Out there. So very, very keen to hear your people's comments and feedback. Now, I want to take a few minutes just to make the very idea of this project a little more plausible. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, okay, I get it. Tiny is about the climate. We're worried about the climate today. Cute connection, Rabbi. But come on, really, are you seriously saying that this book about the situation in Israel 2,000 years ago, when people responded you know, to a climate crisis by praying and fasting, do you think that has that actually got anything to teach us about a global crisis today? you know is caused by CO2 emissions, where what we need to do is basically grounded in technology and business and government. Well, yes, I am saying that. And, and I want to take a moment to set out why I think that the reality of our situation now and the situation that the Talmud talked about are actually closer than we might first think. So the Talmud's teaching is rooted in a particular reality in time and space. You know, the scene of this book is ancient Israel at the onset of autumn, of autumn, the time that we're in now. The end of the summer was a, rely, a reminder to the land's inhabitants of a fundamental existential insecurity. However successful the harvest, and even if wheat and barley and dates and figs and olive had all been safely stored, the rainfall of the coming months could still mean the difference between a life of plenty and a life of hunger, and perhaps, God forbid, no life at all. Tarnit thus describes a, a situation of acute, irrepressible anxiety and neediness in human relationship with the natural world. It unfolds the spiritual drama of Jews in the land of Israel 2,000 or more years ago thrown into crisis by cloudless autumn skies 
and the deadly threat that that was posed to their survival. Now, in the Talmud's typically associative style, the question of how to respond to possible climate disaster ramifies into discussions of all kinds of related matters, but they're related. Matters including our interconnectedness with the natural world, faith, prayer, fasting, theft, food, distribution of critical natural resources, how human economies transform these resources into well-being, exploitation, wealth, poverty, greed, the role of exceptional individuals in the face of a crisis, national destruction, rebirth and hope. All of these are in turn through association with this issue of our dependence on the weather. So what relevance could any of this have to us today? Well, as we know, climate change science shows that human activity is a major contributing cause of extreme weather, in particular through burning huge amounts of fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas. These energy sources have powered our cars, our planes, our factories, heat and cool our homes, power our food production systems, etc. Now, this one-off burst of energy has driven the astonishing leaps in human process, progress and prosperity that have happened since about the year 1800. But now we understand we need to change course. Averting the worst will, will acquire, require us to immediately begin making big changes in our economies, industries and way of life. Renewable energy on a massive scale, a big overhaul of our fossil fuel intensive food production and transportation systems, and according to some people, a reduction in consumption levels, amounting to a transformation of the Western lifestyles we know it. And somehow we need to do this all in an equitable way, in a way which is fair to the poorer and disadvantaged sectors of our society and also the poorer countries in the world. It's a momentous challenge. The threat of climate change thus raises huge questions about our interconnectedness with the natural world, about the way we use energy, food production, consumption, transportation, distribution of resources, theft, exploitation, inequality between the developed and the developing worlds, wealth, poverty, consumerism, greed, the role of individuals in the face of a crisis, global destruction and hope among others. Now, putting it like this is meant, of course, to highlight striking overlaps between the responses uh, highlighted uh, in Tarnit, uh, a moment ago and the ones that we face today. Now, a crisis in the weather actually raises these big issues about our economies and societies both then and now. But still, you know, you should be asking, what about the stark differences? What has the worldview of an ancient people who believed that God was involved in the weather and whose response repertoire included prayer and fasting, what's that got to do with us, with our scientific knowledge of the cause of climate change? and with the technological and and economic changes that we know we need to make in order to slow it. And if you want, you can sharpen the question further. Right? Essential to post-enlightenment thought since Descartes and Newton is the assumption that the physical world is ruled by autonomous and objective, a system of natural laws. Human subjectivity is a distinct realm. So how can this division allow for events in the area of thought or consciousness, like prayer, for example, to affect the operations of nature? It makes no sense. We know that behind the TV weatherman's confident, weather person, I should say, confident forecast, like computer models based on the equations of atmospheric physics. Like, doesn't it feel foolish to pray that tomorrow's weather should turn out to be contrary to the weather person's confident predictions? Well. You know, that was modernity, but actually things have moved on because climate change science gives a new old answer to the question, who or what affects the weather? Now, the pre-modern answer would have been God, or some people would say the gods, working through nature and influenced by the acts of human beings. The modern answer, as we've just said, was nature mediated by scientific laws and with no human involvement at all. But in the area of anthropogenic climate change, the commonly accepted answer is nature mediated by scientific laws and very much influenced by the acts of human being. Now, if so, well, where does nature's role end and human agency start? This interpenetration of human and natural courses actually breaks down the enlightenment's wall between subject and object. So this insight led my, my friend, Dr. Elon Schwartz, uh, the founder and founding director of the Heschel Center, which he founded, of course, together with 
my other good friend, Jeremy Benstein, Elon Schwartz in an unpublished article about a decade ago called Climate Change, an Epochal Event in Redefining Our Relationship with the Natural World. Schwartz compared it to the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which was just such an event at the dawn of the modern era, which widely described as the first modern natural disaster, and tens of thousands of people died in that earthquake. Now, it's part, the earthquake was partly remembered because of a famous response that the French philosopher Voltaire wrote to the earthquake and to things people said about the earthquake, which he didn't like. And people tried to talk about the role of like, God, providence, justice in, in that earthquake. And Voltaire said, rubbish. Earthquakes and hurricanes are part of the mechanism of natural laws that science reveals without any need to invoke God's hand in the explanation. Right? The order of the universe exists independently of the meaning of life. So if, if the Lisbon earthquake was the first modern natural disaster, then Schwartz argues, the climate change exacerbated Hurricane Katrina in 2005 could be considered the first, post, first postmodern natural disaster. Katrina showed that the Enlightenment's division between the natural and human sources of causation has totally broken down. Our activity over the past two centuries has become a force of nature. The British philosophy of science, Stephen Toulmin, called this reconnecting of the human and the natural a return to cosmology. It turns out, and we understand today, that the natural and the moral universes are one system. The natural and the moral universes are one system. If that's true, then the world of Talmatanin actually starts to look a lot more like our own. Think about it, up until 1650, the rabbi's assumption that the heavens are responsive to our acts would have been basically acceptable within the prevailing pre-modern outlook. From 1650 onwards, that outlook came to look absolutely ridiculous and like primitive and pre-modern and throw it out. Since around 2000, on the other hand, when concern about climate change began to rise, it no longer seems stupid at all to believe that human actions might be affecting the weather in potentially dangerous ways. So climate science, I would argue, has actually brought the worldview of climate tractate tarnit within the grasp of 21st century readers. Still, you might object, there's a chasm separating pre-modern and post-modern response modes in the world of the whereby's prayer, fasting, other religious acts are the medium through which the weather may be affected, we might think. In clearer theories of climate science, human influence works through carbon emissions, and the solutions are bureaucratic or technological. Now, isn't that a flesh That's a far cry, isn't it, from prayer and fasting? Well, not as perhaps as far a cry as we might think. Now, there are growing reasons today to think that climate change is unlikely to be addressed by technical and bureaucratic tools alone. Indeed, these tools have proved themselves inadequate to the scale of the challenge so far. Right? Too many sectors of our life are implicated in the problems. The cars we drive, the food we eat, the cities that we inhabit, the solutions demand more than just tinkering. Right? They will likely require a reimagining of our current lifestyles amounting to a shift in consciousness. As Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, heads of the Center for the Study of Religions at Yale put it, an environmental crisis of this complexity and scope is not only the result of certain economic, political and social factors, it's also a moral and a spiritual crisis. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Just a frog in my throat, I assure you. Um, it's a moral and spiritual crisis, which to be addressed will require broader philosophical and religious understandings of ourselves as creatures in nature. So these figures argue that a global response to our environmental crises requires shifting consciousness as much as it needs a transition to new technologies. So if indeed our ecological crises have spiritual roots and require a change in consciousness, then you can see the world is leaning closer towards the Talmud's perspective. But closer inspection of Tainit also shows the Talmud inclining more closely towards the perspective of the world today. It's remarkable that actually very little of the first 10 duff of Tainit is about prayer. There are reflections and warnings about the state of human society, 
which are likely to, to lead to a disruption, disruption in the weather. The rains are stopped only on account of the sin of theft. The rains are stopped because of those who cheat or exploit, and so on and so on. It's as if broaching the subject of rain leads rapidly to the conclusion that the main issue to fix this isn't prayer, but it's societal and spiritual regeneration. Or perhaps that prayer can only be part of the solution, given that wider work, world work of social reformation. So it turns out, I would say, that both the rabbis and contemporary climate policy people converge on the view that dangerous disruption to the weather requires a response that touches our lifestyles, our daily behavior, and our spiritual consciousness. Now, of course, the mechanisms which are assumed for such a response to be effective, divine providence on one hand or carbon emissions on the other, are very different. Although carbon dioxide, like divine providence, is invisible and is imperceptible, and to many people it's incomprehensible. But let, leave the mechanisms aside for now, and what remains are people responding to an existential danger from the weather through shifts in behavior and consciousness that reverberate across the divine separating pre-modern and post-modern consciousness. So let's, let's open up Tanit. Well, a word first about how I've learned Talmud over the years, very quickly. So the idea of rooting a Jewish theology of climate change in reading Talmud Tanit springs from belief that the Babylonian Talmud is the richest source of Jewish thought that we have on just about everything. This in turn flows from more than 25 years of learning together with my Cheruta, Rabbi Josh Weisberg, with whom I've learned through Tanit about four times. So, so, you know, a lot of his thinking is in this as well. And it's also influenced by great teachers, alive and dead, through whom we've been privileged to learn. We're students of Harav Shagar, Zatal, who some of you might have heard. And we learned from him, among other people, to bring our whole lives to the interpretation of the, Tam, of the Talmud. Not so as to impose contemporary conditions on the text, but rather to remain open to its revelatory word here and now. The French philosopher Levinas expressed this aspiration, arguing for a way of reading Talmud that's attuned to life, to the street, to the city, and to other people. Our way of reading Talmud has also been shaped by Rav Cook and his call for a reintegration of the halachic, legal, and the agadic, non-legal parts of the Talmud. And <clears throat> we're also inspired by a teacher, Harav Dov Berkowitz's conviction that through both the halacha and the agadah, the Talmud develops continuous intellectual themes and ideas throughout a chapter and a tractate. And by the way, we were in a learning group with Harav Dov Berkowitz 10 years ago, and that's, you know, many of the ideas that I'm going to share with you have, have, have our roots there, have its roots there. So, okay, the beginning of Tractate Tanit, which I'll share with you in a minute. The, the opening of any Talmudic Tractate can tell us a lot. It's really a little bit like a movie trailer. You have, you have flashing by in quick succession. We're introduced to key questions, arguments, motifs, and themes that will surface repeatedly throughout the rest of the tractate, creating a kind of schematic overview of the whole. Now, this effect was apparently achieved by composing the opening sections last. Scholars from Rev Schreer go on in the ninth century onwards have argued that actually the introductory sections were the work of the later generations of scholars who lived in the sixth and seventh century who completed the editing of the Talmud. And this was like the introductory class and it was kind of giving you a schematic overview. Now, these beginnings of the Talmud can focus on details that do not at first sight seem connected to the discussions that follow, but the appearance is often deceptive. On closer examination, they can often be seen to serve as a kind of a code for central ideas that will be raised through the rest of the book, gestured or hinted at in the Talmud's elusive style. So with that in mind, I'd like to say that the beginning of Tractate Talmud wants to take us through two distinct shifts in consciousness that, that the, 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 the authors want us to get through in order to approach this book. Yeah, teacher, I just want to ask you to put your camera, we've lost part of your face, pull your camera down a bit, we'll sit up, thank you, carry okay. on. Okay, there I am. So, uh, so uh, actually, um, I'm now going to share the beginning of uh, Tractate Tarnit. Um, this is, this is the opening, and I've, as you can see, I've copied from uh, Safaria. Um, 
So what you have there in, in, in the English is the bold as a translation and, uh, and the other stuff is, is their kind of explanatory commentary. Um, so the beginning of the Talmud, uh, Talmud Tanya, begins like this. From what moment do we remind ourselves maskirin of the power of rain? What's, what's going on here? So the need for life-giving rain in ancient Israel wasn't constant, but it was seasonal. It began in the fall with the end of the harvest and the approaching Sukkot Chag and grew throughout the winter. So Mishnah Tanit begins with a question about the timing of a spoken reminder of our need for rain. The Mishnah is referring to the word, what we say in the second paragraph of the Amidah. Um, the beginning of the second paragraph of the Amidah, we insert the words, Mashif HaRuach Umori HaGashem. That's what it means when it says, Gevurach Gashamim. Uh, God who brings the, word, uh, brings the winds and causes the rain to fall. And it's asking, when do we start saying that? Now, you might ask, well, what's so important about this apparently minor question? Well, for now, we'll put that question aside and see what the Gomorrah does with the Mishnah's question. So the Gomorrah opens its discussion of the question like this. Um, if, now, if someone could give me a shout when we need to, when I need to move down the, uh, the source, that would be, uh, that would be good. Um, so it begins the discussion like this says, on what is the teacher of the Mishnah basing himself to teach from when do we begin saying God makes the winds to blow and the winds to fall? So the first question of the Talmud is where do we start? Now the Talmud there is there pointing out that the Mishnah by opening with a question from when begins unchronologically in the middle. Asking when we start saying this assumes that we already know that we do say this. And then the question is, well, how do we know that? So isn't this question about timing in itself ill-timed? So I want to say that the beginning of the Talmud's discussion casts doubt on whether we can really begin anywhere. Wherever we might try to start presupposes ideas which were before our attempted uh, beginning. So some people might recognize this question. Because Brachot, the very first tractate of the Talmud, opens in identical fashion. The first mission of Brachot starts from when do we say the evening Shema? On which the Talmud in Brachot immediately asks exactly the same question that's raised here in Tami. Tani, upon what is the teacher basing himself to start with from when? Brachot therefore also begins by suggesting that there's nowhere we can really start. We're always in the middle in Brachot of this vast and interconnected web of, uh, of Torah. So why then is Tanit the only other tractate of the Talmud which begins in exactly the same way with the Talmud as the Talmud's first tractate, with this pointed reflection on the impossibility of beginning anywhere? I want to make a suggestion which I think is borne out by the rest of Tanit, and I hope that I can make it plausible <laughs> here. Tractate Tanit is about how we recognize and act on the truth of our essential interconnectedness with the rest of creation. In the way Tanit thinks about this, humanity is, so to speak, the mouth of the world, as we saw, articulating the yearning of all created beings, the lulav and us, for life-giving rain. The Talmud envisages a world in which the skies are responsive to prayer and to piety and where theft and arrogance and oppression disperse the clouds and drive away the rain. The rabbis themselves describe a version of the hydrological cycle where evaporating ocean clouds fall Oceans form clouds and give rain and in turn evaporate into new clouds, but it inserts human beings and their agency into these circular natural processes. In other words, it's a vision of the unity between the human and the natural universes. The natural and the moral universes are one system. So Tanit depict, depicts a universe in which human words and deeds are interwoven with the fabric of other living systems. So this twin, these twin beginnings of Brachot and Tanit implicitly align this experience of embeddedness in an infinite web of interconnectedness in the realm both of Torah for the beginning of Brachot and nature for the beginning of Tanit. 
in both of those worlds, we're in the middle of an interconnected web and there's no place we can really start. Actually, I found a strikingly similar insight expressed by the great American thinker, Ralph Waldo Emerson, near the beginning of his essay, The American Scholar. Emerson says, what is nature to him, to the American scholar? There's never a beginning and never an end to the inexplicable continuity of this web of God, but always circular power returning into itself. Therein it resembles his own spirit, whose beginning, whose end he can never find so entire and boundless. So Emerson too is likening this endless, circular, interconnected character of nature with these same facets of human consciousness. So our words and our deeds in Tanit affect the natural world, which profoundly affects our lives and our deeds, which in turn influence the world once again. So there's no starting point in our relationship to Torah Shabbat Peh, just as there's no starting point in our relationship to the natural world. We're always in the middle. In the world of Talmud Tanit, these two spheres are themselves interwoven. When we, what we think and speak and do has an indelible effect on nature. We're always in the middle embedded in endless, endless webs of interconnection. That, I think, is the first shift in consciousness that the opening of Tarnit invites us to step into. Now let's take the second step and look at the Talmud's answer to its own question about the Mishnah's basis for asking from when. Now, a brief health warning. The answer was going to seem at first sight to seem completely technical. On a closer look, I think it's going to teach us about a further fundamental shift in consciousness that's necessary when we start responding to worrying changes in the weather. So this is the Talmud's answer. Um, I'm going to scroll down in the, uh, in the source and just give me a thumbs up uh, just uh, to make sure that happened. Okay. <clears throat> so where is the, uh, yeah, did that scroll down happen? Yep, great. Okay. So the answer is that the, the, it's already been learned from somewhere else. Where else? Uh, the teacher is basing himself on the following. It's learned in a, in a mission in Brachot that we mentioned the might of rain at the second blessing in the Amida, in the second blessing of the Amida. Right? And we learn that in tractate Brachot, the first tractate of the Talmud. So the Talmud's answer to how we even know that there's a practice of inserting this phrase about rain and wind into the Amida is that it was taught explicitly in the Talmud's very first volume, Brachot. But then the Talmud notes an obvious question arises. Well, let the Mishnah ask this question about from where over there in Brachot, if it's already talking about it over there. Why does it leave the question over to here? So surely the natural place for asking from when do we mention the rain in our prayers should have been Brachot where the very fact that we do mention the rain is taught. The Talmud answers, the, uh, the teacher is jumping off from Rosh Hashanah, as it's taught in a Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, on Sukkot, right now we're judged for rainfall. So, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, that deals with the Jewish New Year, speaks about the time at which the world is judged for rain, that will fall in the coming year. So since in the traditional ordering of Talmudic tractates, Talmud comes right after Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnah decided that the proper place for our question about when we start mentioning rain is, is here in Tanit rather than in Brachot, as you might at first have supposed. So the question of when we start mentioning rain has led us into a discussion about where that question itself belongs, turning on apparently arcane lexicographical facts about the correct ordering of Talmudic tractates. Like, who cares? Like, really? I mean, who, why is this how we start the tractate Tanya? I would say that the issue of whether our question from when should be placed in Brachot or after Rosh Hashanah is actually about the world of associations in which rainfall belongs. Because these two, Masechta, Brachot and Rosh Hashanah, have very communicate, very, very different spiritual resonances. What's Brachot about? Brachot is about the year-long round of blessings, prayers, and acknowledgements that comprise the quotidian substance, if you like, of religious Jewish life. It's about the everyday fabric of existence. It's about getting out of bed. It's about washing and eating and greeting other people and countless other mundane acts when we lie down, when we wake up, 
when we go to the bathroom, when we smell sweet spices, or when we catch a glimpse of the sea, we acknowledge the miracle of the moment and we give thanks to God. The subject matter of Brachot then isn't seasonal, it's constant. It weaves an awareness of wonder into our everyday lives through perennial experiences. So as the great poet Chaim Nachman Bialik lyrically puts it in his essay on Halakha Nagada, all the prescriptions of Brachot are nothing but raiment for the idea that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And for the constant and ever new thrill of wonder at the glory of nature and its changes. The atmosphere of Rosh Hashanah, on the other hand, is very different. Themes of the holiday and the Talmud tractate that bears its name are prayer and awesome judgment. The holiday of Rosh Hashanah begins the Aseret Yemei Tshuva, a period of self-examination and striving for self-improvement that culminates in Yom Kippur. The experience of Rosh Hashanah is not the stuff of year-round Jewish time. It's marked by a sense of urgency rooted in the particular moment. Now, the opening of, Tal of Talmud Tanit, I would argue, thereby wants to effect a change in consciousness as to where thinking about the weather belongs in our minds, in our cognitive classifications. The Havamina, what you might, to use the Talmudic term, what you might initially have thought is that recognition of rainfall flits into the everyday world, the world of Bachot. And that's certainly what it felt like growing up in England, that you know, the weather is just, you know, what you talk about when you've got nothing else to talk about. And that havamina, that presumption, is very seriously explored. That the weather fits into the everyday and the mundane. But this presumption is set aside in favour of the conclusion that we're actually in the Rosh Hashanah world now, the world of fear and trembling. The impact of this beginning, I think, it means to reframe the reader's understanding of where, at this moment of mountain concern, rainfall actually belongs in the repertoire of Jewish spiritual response. Now, this shift between experiencing rain and the weather in the registers of Brachot or of Rosh Hashanah is, I think, that most of us who've been taking any notice of climate change, we've made this shift at some point. Some people made this mental switch after Hurricane Katrina killed nearly 2,000 people and devastated New Orleans. Some it was triggered by Hurricane Maria, which took out the grid in Puerto Rico in 2018, leading to over 3,000 deaths. For some, it was the extreme heat wave of 2019, when France and Germany and Spain suffered record-breaking temperatures. <coughs> For some of us in Israel, that shift happened last month when Jerusalem experienced its highest ever temperatures by far ever since records began, over 42 degrees centigrade, jolting us into realizing that the weather is no longer just part of the benignly boring backdrop of our lives. It's a lot more serious than that. The Talmud at the opening of Tanit, I would say, like the weather of the past decade, calls on us to wake up, to set aside the consciousness of the weather as something comfortingly mundane and to recognize it as a potential peril. It's a cry of concern and it's a call to action. Tomorrow, we're gonna to look at how and why we can and should take action. On, uh, on Wednesday, I'm gonna talk about uh, climate change, COVID and as interconnected crises and how the, uh, how the Talmud, I think, very much understands that. And on, uh, on Thursday, uh, the uh, towards a better mythology of climate change. So thanks, thanks very much again for being here. And I'm really, really happy and looking forward to taking any, uh, any, any, any questions and uh, open out the discussion. Thank you. So, um, so first of all, Yadidia, um, a humongous thank you. Um, secondly, as a number of people noted, this is a remarkably distinguished group um, mm -hmm. and it's great credit to who you are, um, uh, pound for pound or kilo for kilo. Uh, this is one of the strongest groups in relationship to the questions that you're raising that one could imagine. I'm actually not going to name people in individually because it would be invidious, but I do uh, want to welcome actually Walter Sinclair, Yadidia's um, <laughs> father, and it's the, the first time I've seen you in a long time, and I hope that you and Margaret are well and that you should share much nachos uh, <laughs> at having Yadidia here. Um, here's what we're going to do. We've got, we've got 13 minutes now. 
But what I also want to, for a little bit of Q&A, but what I also just want to say to people is that Yadidia, as he sketched out just now, not only has four coherent lectures organized, but in a brilliantly classically uh, Rabbi Yadidia Sinclair way, he's also still revising them. And so I'm going to invite people to put questions into the chat. We will get perhaps to one or two of them now, but we will make sure that Yadidia gets all of the questions that you put in now. And if and to the extent that he is able to or wants to, will they will some of those answers may get inserted into the remaining three lectures. And also depending on how things go, we may allow some extra time uh, at the end of the, the last one uh, for further uh, discussion. But for now, first of all, um, um, I want to welcome Rabbi Marsha Plum, who I haven't seen for a long time. And Marsha, I can't see you on your, your screen. Um, but um, Marsha at some point, I think, had asked um, about the hierarchy in Breshit. She had said, where do you put the seeming hierarchy of humanity having power over naming rights and the rest of creation set up in Breshit? Is that part of interwovenness or is it different? And she said interwovenness to me reflects interdependence and equality, but Breshit also says we have dominion, as it were, over other creatures. Master, I can't see where you are. I don't know if I'm able to unmute you. Um, I think that's actually fairly clearly said, but you did you. I'm going to hand that one over to you for now and invite anybody else to add further questions to the chat. Mm. First, first, uh, I just like scrolled through who who's here, and and I'm also, you know, very grateful that you know so many people who've, you know, really whose giants on whose shoulders I'm standing uh, and are here, and I want to say thank you to all of you from whom whose writings I've I've read and whose teachings I've learned from, and uh, and uh, and and you know, and thank you, and I owe a lot to uh, to, to to all of you. Um, on that question of of uh, of Breshit, it's a big question, and I would say that I would say that this is where I think Tanit and Breshit, and perhaps Jewish tradition more broadly, has a distinctive uh, a distinctive view, which is this combination of of of, of interconnectedness with with everything. And on, on, on one level, on a biological plane, being part of everything and sharing the same needs and the same vulnerabilities. But on another level, being privileged by, by having these abilities to speak, to articulate, to reflect, to understand and to, to respond and to choose uh, a, a direction and you know, to choose life, we hope. Uh, on behalf of all of uh, all of creation, so so I do think yes that there's there is that hierarchy, uh, but it's obviously not it's not a hierarchy of for the best privilege or exploitation. It's a hierarchy of responsibility and stewardness, stewardship and responsibility. I'm happy. I don't know how this works, but if you want to actually put your hand up and actually physically and embodiedly ask a question, I warmly uh, invite you to do so. And if I don't quite, I'm, I'm still not an expert at these Zoomy things. So if I, I don't see you in the 25 names I have here, put it in the chat. But if somebody wants Sh to- Shoshana Friedman, uh, raise her hand. Hi, thank you so much. I'm absolutely loving this. I've. Um, done a lot of teaching and activism on climate change and um, my strength in text is Tanakh and Midrash. And so it's really wonderful to get more of an in-depth sense of what I've been missing in Tani and I'm excited to dive in. Um, God willing. <laughs> I am curious, Yudidia, if you have seen in the text or if anybody knows um, anthropologically slash archeologically, geologically, if we know of any actual climatic shifts that the rabbis we're dealing with over the hundreds of years of the canonization of rabbinic texts. Um, as the background to this, just scientifically, as we think about weather, is what happens within the probability um, 
uh, circle of climate, right? Climate is, is the sense of what is the probability of any kind of weather happening and that's what's shifting and the weather year to year um, without crazy climate change that's happening now can, act, can you know, it can change there here and there, but the climate itself can say the same. But we know that in the ancient Near East used to have a very different climate and that part of that, what happened was deforestation and the change of the ecology there. So I'm curious if we know of any record in the text of broader climatic changes as opposed to just year to year droughts um, and or if the, the fear um, year to year is something that we can be drawing on even though what we're afraid of is actually not just year to year but an ongoing sense of peril. Hmm. Um, that's a really, really great question and, and the honest answer is, is I don't know the answer. I don't know of, I haven't noticed any reflection in, in the Talmudic text on that question, but uh, if anybody else uh, does or has or knows about research into those kinds of shifts, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be thrilled to hear. Next question, the floor is open. <laughs> Nearly, you're up. And Nilly, how lovely to see you. No? Oh, you're just waving. No, I just couldn't figure out how to unmute myself. <laughs> um, I hi, Nilly. Nice to see you. Hi, Julian. Nice to see you, Didia. Um, I'm sorry, Shoshana was it who was just speaking? I think that um, I found a lot of power, actually, in... I was surprised this year in how powerful it was for some of my colleagues who are maybe come from this more from the eco background than the Torah background and are really learning to learn the Torah background and the love it. it how powerful it was for them to think of the Torah as a think of the Torah as a as a text of a people who had seen environmental destruction. Um, <laughs> So whether, it, whether it's climactic or this one is not, if, if you kind of think of the entire time, I mean, this, I, this I learned from one of my teachers, David Seidenberg, right? Which is if you look at most of those early Brashit stories of the Torah and, and others as well, as um, a creation story that remembers environmental destruction throughout, if you just sort of make that assumption, then all of a sudden you read it very differently. Um, and I found that people found that very powerful to think of this document as, as the document of a people who had, who had observed that in neighboring communities and who had lived through that in some part of their history and um, that, that these, so many of these laws were sort of in reaction to massive environmental degradation, even if it wasn't climactic then it then mm. informs everything, including the stuff about rain. Mm. Yes, yes, indeed. I, I think that's, I think that's very true. I think that, that you know, throughout the Torah, you, you see, you know, you see stories of, of you know, environmental disaster, of, you know, the, the flood, of the destruction of Solomon Gomorrah. And as, and where I'm going to begin from tomorrow is I think that there's a, there's a very strong thread running through the Torah, which is picked up by Tanit about the particular and peculiar vulnerability of this part of the world where I'm sitting, the, the land of Israel, to, to, to the climate. And that there's a, 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 a special and acute vulnerability uh, that is experienced here, and a, a particular dependence on the weather and on rain which has been absolutely formative of the consciousness, the spiritual consciousness of the Jewish people, whether we're aware of it today or not. And we're not so aware of it today, but tomorrow I'm gonna to begin by talking about, we're trying to recover that consciousness. So um, Yadidia, thank you for that. I'm gonna take that as the last comment for today. Um, teachers always wanna leave people hanging on, <laughs> on the seat and the same with, all of these stupid TV shows, you want a sort of cliffhanger. And I feel that we have an intellectual cliffhanger. Um, uh, I want to thank you enormously. I, I was thinking at the very end there, it never occurred to me in quite this way, 
that of course the paradigmatic destruction in Jewish life is the destruction of the temple and that the discussion about the argument between Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, which we learn about in the lead up to Tishavav, is itself also drawing a very dotted line between human and interpersonal behavior on the one hand and something that as it were happens externally. And it's very, very fascinating to think about different models of destruction, responses to destruction, and our, our, our contributions to them. But for now, I want to thank everybody enormously. I want to say a huge thank you to Rabbi Yedidia Sinclair. We're going to be posting this online. And so if people, if there are friends of yours or family members who actually want to be able to have a look at this before tomorrow, then you are warmly welcome to. But other than that, we hope that we will see you tomorrow at seven o'clock Jerusalem time, 5 p.m. England time, noon uh, here on the East Coast, 9 a.m. on the West Coast, and whatever other times it is, wherever you are. Thank you, Mardim Nesimcha.